podcast of 2012 it is the shot reverse shot review of the year best films of the year list uh, in which myself joe gastineau hello and ed davis hello uh we are going to tell you what the best 10 films of the year are um and if there's any argument or any umbrage taken with that then you're just an idiot because we will fight we say, you behind the bike sheds yeah we will meet you there and we will fuck you up um we are um bringing this to you a very very complex system after last year of just saying what our favourite films were that wasn't deemed good enough for us and we design, we um, have contrived to make this way more complex than it needed to be and have um, uh, utilised a system used by many um, outlets to decide their best films or albums of the year uh, a kind of a voting system with kind of lots of like points assignment and stuff but it's uh, a lot of effort to go to for just two people Um um, but we've done it anyway. We thought, fuck it. Um, and a uh, friend of the show, Joe Rivers, thank you very much, Mr. Joe Rivers, uh, has a degree in maths and has helped us out by uh, recording our votes and working out what our top ten was and also the films that didn't make the list. Um, and just so you know, we don't know them. We have no idea what made our top ten. We have got them in a document and we will find them out as you do so our surprise and disgust is genuine <laughs> <laughs> um, before we go on Ed the one thing that we do know is we know that we voted for 30 films between us and uh, the veritable Joe Rivers has sent us the 20 films that didn't make the list uh, and we've seen those so Ed what uh, what did you pick on there that, that, that just missed the cut Okay, on my list I had uh, Killer Joe, the uh, William Freakin film that we discussed on the previous one, where I, which I said I, where I wasn't sure if it was a pitch black comedy or an awful drama. Um, mm-hmm. Still not sure, but I think it deserved a place. Um, yeah. I also voted for The Raid, or The Raid Redemption, depending on where it was released, because uh, uh, in the States it was The Raid Redemption because the there's a film called The Raid, so they needed to change it for legal reasons, even though there's not a shred of redemption in the entirety of the film. Mm-hmm. But um, it was a very brutal and effective action movie that I had a blast watching. Uh, it was uh, kind of crazy, uh, a lot of fun, and directed by a Welshman, which I find very strange. Um, just the idea that the one of the sort of most acclaimed uh, international action films of recent years would be directed by someone who graduated from the University of Swansea. Um, yeah. I also voted for Michael, the uh, German or Austrian film about paedophile, which was uh, one of the least comfortable experiences of my life in a cinema. It was a very, very bleak and uh, depressing and thoroughly effective examination of sort of the the banality of evil um, that I I found to be a hugely effective uh, experience. Uh, and one of the weirdest uses of a pop song ever, as in a scene where the, the, the character of Michael drives through the town uh, singing the song Sunny, um, uh, which uh, is just a, a like a delightful pop song being sung by an absolute monster. It's, uh, it's quite effective. Uh, mm-hmm. 
I also voted for Skyfall, which was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that a great deal. Um, it, was a, it was a really full throttle uh, blockbuster, which uh, also had some nice uh, sort of engaged with the character of James Bond, sort of this aging icon in a way, which I found to be very uh, interesting, but also delivered plenty of sort of ridiculous spectacles. So it was kind of a, a, a cerebral Bond film that didn't lack for um, sort of visceral thrills. Uh, Anna Karenina, Joe Wright's adaptation of the Leo Tolstoy novel, which I liked a great deal, purely, almost solely on technical terms. I think that, you know, the idea of filming it all in the theatre and having it all unfold uh, in a very sort of theatrical way was uh, was uh, astonishing to see worked out. I think there was a it was a really interesting sort of collusion of uh, cinema and theatre to create something that was kind of a hybrid of both. Um, and uh, I thought the performance was really good, but the, it, was, it was also a very artificial experience. It's very, very hard to engage with the stories of any of the characters in a lot of ways, which is what kind of stops it from being like a really uh, amazing film. Although I did think that uh, Donald, Donald Gleeson's uh, performance was, uh, was pretty wonderful. I think he was, the, he was the emotional heart of the film, I thought, and, and was really, really lovely. Um, Beast of the Southern Wild, which uh, you and I have both seen, I think we're both a little bit uh, divided on it. Would you say? Uh, yeah, well, I'm yeah completely on the fence. I think I said to you before the recording that uh, I can't make up my mind whether it is a kind of um, beautiful kind of uh, piece of art or a aimless piece of wank. Uh, it's it's one of those. It treads the line. Yeah, I really, really am not sure. Uh, what I am certain of though is it does contain one of the best child performances I think I've ever seen. Absolutely. A quite startling turn by someone who is five years old and is the main character of the film. Um, and yes, it's stunning in that sense, but um, yeah, jury's out on that one. <laughs> but it's yeah. certainly got something about it, hasn't it, Ed? It definitely does. I really need to watch it again because I'm much the same. I'm sort of more positive about it than that. I think I'm, I'm leaning over one side of the fence while still remaining sat upon it. Um... Mm. Uh, Cabin in the Woods I also voted for I thought that was a lot of fun although as you and I have discussed off air uh, it's probably not as good as Tucker and Dale versus Evil which does a lot of yeah. the same things but uh, doesn't force you to sit through a slightly standard slasher film for its first half as Cabin in the Woods does yeah I think uh, Cabin in the Woods I think um, I felt I felt a, a bit victim to the um, uh, not hype hype's the wrong word I think um because I tried to avoid absolutely everything about it as soon as people started to say, you know, is this subversive kind of deconstruction of the horror film? I, try, I tried to not know anything. So, but I, fe I felt like as I watched it, um, just knowing that it was, a, it was a subversive deconstruction of the horror film was knowing too much. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, because I, I saw it at a preview before any of sort of word had leaked out about it. And I just had an absolute blast. I thought it was a really, really fun experience. But I could see why, you know, pretty much even just knowing, not knowing details about it, but knowing that it was sort of deconstructionist would kind of have a, a detrimental impact on the enjoyment of it, which I think is uh, the problem when kind of people... with that the, the, the reason also why that film kind of couldn't really... didn't really do hugely well at the box office was that without ruining it, the only way you can sell it is a really standard horror film. But as soon as you ruin it, then that kind of takes away the special surprise of it. But yeah, yeah I, I, I really I had a blast with that one. Oh, that was really good. Um, Paranorman, I enjoyed a great deal. Uh, it was a lovely um, stop motion animation. 
by the uh, people at uh, Leica, who also did Coraline. Right. About, yeah. about a young boy who grows up in this town where he's the he, he can see the dead. So there's all there's a a fun uh, sort of. Uh, love of sort of horror cinema in there. He's someone who's really obsessed with with scary movies and and is desperately trying to fit in and be normal, even though he has this this sort of unwanted gift of being able to see people. But uh, the film is very uh, funny. It's uh, poignant and beautiful at times. Um, uh, has a, a, a wonderfully even-handed approach to pretty much every character in the film. There's not really any villains in it which is rare for a kids films there's characters who are misunderstood and then once you learn more about them then you kind of come around to their what you understand their actions a lot more there's a wonderful thing about uh non-conformity and, and anti-bullying message in there which is subtly worked into the film and works without being kind of like you're hammering being hammered over the head with messages and i just thought it was a, it was really wonderful i thought it was really lovely uh also voted for young adult yes i did too yeah, I, that was a film in which I watched and I thought, because I've got a slightly, um, I'm not quite as enamoured with Jason Reitman as everyone else seems to be, um, up in the air as a film that I didn't particularly dig, actually. Uh, I, th- I thought that a lot of the, th- I thought it was, it was quite kind of heavy-handed in a lot of ways. Um, so when I watched Young Adult, my expectations were quite low, and when I finished it, my expectations seemed to have been met, because I, I kind of felt the same way I did about up in the air but the more I kind of let it sit with me the more it grew and and, uh, and kind of gestated inside me as something that was really really good and I think that um, at the start of the year we did a preview episode and, and you'd already seen the film by that point and you said that it was the film that was going to cross Jason Reitman over as uh, from a, a filmmaker of promise to a filmmaker who makes uh, you know grown up films basically and um, I can kind of see that now, and I can, and I've watched it again since, and I, I think it's a really, really good film. I do as well. I think it's just got an amazing central performance by Charlize Theron. Patton Oswalt's great in it, um, mm-hmm. and it's just got a, it's just such a delightfully uh, sort of scathing view of that sort of self-involved character that doesn't really let her off the hook for her selfishness, whilst also not damning her completely by kind of explaining why she's such a fuck-up, but also kind of uh, showing why uh, there's kind of no way of helping her. But in a way that's mm. really, really funny and sort of, it, you know, one of, I think the tone of the film is wonderfully summed up by the scene in which she and Patton Oswald are making fun of the guy in the wheelchair because mm. uh, he was the guy, he was like in a car accident. And, that and really, he stole their thunder. Yeah, he stole their thunder. And I think that's just such a wonderful... Uh, examination of the, these kind of like weird, twisted, broken people, um, and I think that's a really wonderful film. And the last film of mine that didn't make the top ten was uh, Frank and Weenie, the Tim Burton film, uh, which is a film that I don't entirely trust my judgment on because it's a film about a young kid whose dog is uh, killed and he brings him back to life. I saw it about five weeks after my dog died, and I cried openly in the cinema watching it. I think. Uh, it was. Um, I was very, very pleased. I was the only one there. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I did. I do think it's a. It's a really lovely film. I think it's beautiful to look at. Um, it's. It's one of Burton's best-looking films. Uh, it's funny. It's very, very sweet. It's clearly very dear to his heart, being a story that he's told once before, thirty years earlier. But also, you know, it's, it's clearly a loving tribute to all of the stuff that he loved growing up, and it's. 
the film that, of his that's had the most obvious care and attention since, you know, Mars Attacks, really, which was, you know, of a similar idea, but played less for, for poignancy and more for gags that, in that instance. Mm. So uh, the closest is something like Ed Wood or something like that, which kind of has a lot of the same elements to it. Uh, and I think that it's uh, it's a shame that it hasn't been uh, as big a commercial hit as some of his other films. I mean, it made less money than Dark Shadows, and that's a piece of shit. Um, that was horrible. But you know, it was just it was just so nice after years and years of him just making sort of absolute trash to see him make something that actually had some sort of weight and and seemed to speak to the idea of him having a soul and you know some sort of muse that he was following. Hmm. Yeah, well, um, they're all very good choices, Ed. Um, the ones that I picked uh, that you didn't um, uh, are Best How to Survive a Plague, a truly moving documentary about the uh, the kind of um, struggle for uh, uh, fought by gay activists in the seventies um, uh, and eighties uh, about the kind of fight against AIDS. Um, you know, cheery number. Uh, a film uh, called Holy Motors, which is by a massive stretch, a country mile, the most fucking crackers film I think uh, I'm likely to see this year or any other year. Um, uh, I really can't even begin to uh, kind of explain that apart from there's a bit where a tramp comes out of a sewer, kidnaps Eva Mendes and takes her down to the sewer, licks her armpits and then eats flowers. Um, And that's not even the weirdest bit. Next pick for me was a film called Bernie, a Richard Linklater's film, which I don't think has actually been released in the UK. It kind of disappeared without a trace in America, but uh, a very, very kind of um, interesting addition to his canon. Um, I'd recommend everyone see that. Uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene, or as I like to call it, Eminem and Eminem, um, which is uh, a very good debut from Sean Durkin. Did you see that one, Ed? I did. I thought it was very, very good. I just forgot to include it in my list. But yeah, it was very... Uh, Intense and atmospheric examination of sort of cults and mm-hmm. the, uh, the the power that a charismatic figure can have over people who are very easily swayed. Uh, played yeah. by John Hawkes, who uh, is amazing, a wonderful actor. Sadly, wasted in a film called The Sessions, which uh, looks like it's going to get a lot of Oscar buzz despite being very boring. Right. Um, he'll probably get a nomination for best Oscar, uh, best actor, and it will be one of those times where you think, "Oh, good for him," but. Really, yeah, oh, they could yeah, have done he, it for somewhere else, you know. Yeah, he was he was he was great in Martha Marcy May Marlene. And the last film I picked that you didn't uh, was Bombay Beach, a film I actually saw two years ago, <laughs> uh, a film that I saw in 2011 uh, at Fest that only came out at the start of this year, which is uh, a truly unique piece of work that everyone should see. It was on British TV um, last week, in fact, uh, which is no use to you, Ed. Um, but I would heartily recommend watching it. I'll keep I'll keep an eye out for it on Netflix because a lot of the films that tend to show up are t- that start to t- tend to get played at Dockfest tend to show up on US Netflix. Like uh, I watched Marvin Cold a few weeks ago, which was, great film. Uh, it is that's that's an astonishing film. I'd really recommend people check that out. Because I, I I recommended that to you. I picked that in our documentaries uh, uh, podcast, didn't I? Yeah, that's yeah. Great. That is, is quite something. So anyway, enough about that. Um, Oh god, we've wrapped that up really quickly. I thought we were going to waffle on about those <laughs> films for ages. So, um, without further ado, we will um, begin to find out our uh, top ten films of the. Oh, hang on, this seems to be a perfect opportunity to insert our top ten jingle. Yeah, you ready? Yeah. Yep. Okay, here it comes. Mm-hmm. 
top ten. Gets me every time, Matt. Yeah, I know. Now I feel like I can begin this top ten. Um, so, have you got a beer, Ed? I have. I have. I have two. So, are you ready you to find out? have two beers. Yeah, well, I have actually, but one's unopened. Um, are you ready to find out what our number ten film was this year? Yeah, come on. Our number ten film was as as voted for <laughs> by me by me and you is uh, Whit Stillman's Damsel in Distress. Oh, that's a very pleasant surprise. I think it was it was sort of middle of the pack on my list, but I'm guessing it was quite high on yours. Uh, no, it was middle of the pack on mine as well. Oh. So, so mediocrity wins again. Um, so, no. for anyone who doesn't know, what's Damsel in Distress? Damsels in Distress is the first film by Whit Stillman in over a decade. I think the last film he made was The uh, Last Days of Disco, which was uh, 1998, and then he made Damsels in Distress, which uh, I think is technically a 2011 film, but it only really entered the world in any meaningful way in 2012. Yep. It's a film about a quartet of uh, girls at a college, uh, led by uh, Greta Gerwig, and they're sort of... Oh, um, Greta Gerwig. They're kind of uh, do-gooders, uh, is probably the best way to describe them. They're people who uh, run a suicide hotline of sorts, or society, where their solution seems to be... Um, giving donuts. Donuts. And uh, Greta Gerwig believes that she can change the world if she can just develop a dance. Uh, and it's a film that has there's, there's not really much else really that you can really talk about in terms of the plot they have sort of relationships with boys and they try and uh, their kind of relationships between each other uh, alter and, and fray over the course of the sort of year that the film seems to cover and it is a film that has uh, produced much like, like crazy very very opposed views there are people like you and I who were, who were very charmed by it and there were people who just found it to be the most irritating fucking thing imaginable uh, yeah if you don't if you don't buy into that yeah. kind of very formal very uh, sorry not formal what do I mean by this this very kind of mannered way in which it's the characters are portrayed this very kind of preppy way but it's kind of there's an ironic distance there but if you don't get that that is a horrible experience watching that film. Yeah, I think it, it's one of those things where I think people think that you're meant to like the characters straight away. When I think it's one of those things where you're meant to kind of view them as people who, like anyone who's like uh, in college, uh, someone who's who thinks they know more about the world than they actually do, and as such are kind of a little too uh, a bit a bit too much to take. Um, which is kind of what those characters are to begin with. And as you watch the film, you in, you grow to like them more as you kind of realise that below their kind of quirks, there are these kind of like, you know, there's sort of beating hearts and, mm. and real, you know, real well-drawn characters who are a lot of fun to sort of hang around with. Uh, and there are, it's, it's a very gentle kind of humour. Anyone who's familiar with Whit Stillman's earlier films, such as uh, Metropolitan, which is a, a fantastic comedy about sort of washfish um, rich young people in set in early 90s New York which is, is, is mm. a lot of fun uh, will kind of uh, know what to expect in time of this very low-key dry sense of humour which uh, I found to be delightful the thing that kept making me laugh the most was the one of the, the girls constantly talks about peeping, people being player operators which is just, <laughs> it's just a really funny way of pronouncing that word which I think that kind of sums up the film which is you will either be really annoyed by that all the way through, or you will hear it, kind of thing, and it will just kind of get funnier the more time they say it. And I think that's kind of uh, the stumbling block for a lot of people. Um, 
It's one of those films that I would really, really recommend to people, but with so many reservations, they might end up being persuaded not watching it. Because you kind of like say, it is really, really funny, but it's a very specific kind of future, humour. And the characters are really annoying, but you grow to like them, except if you don't. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, the, and if you don't, you will hate this film. Yeah, but I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was, it was, it was uh, really delightful to see Whit Stillman return with such a, a, a delightful uh, piece of work. No, I, I absolutely loved it. Uh, I thought that because um, I'd seen Last Days of Disco when it came out, um, and at, at which point I didn't really place Whit Stillman mm. in you know in a, in a kind of body of work that didn't really kind of hit me uh, and then um, I got an invite for Des- uh, Damsels in Distress um, but beforehand I watched um, Metropolitan the day before and was totally won over by Metropolitan but that's you know another film which if you don't go with that that's just rich arseholes in a room talking <laughs> um, and then Damsels in Distress the next day was a yeah a really good film and I'm a huge fan of Greta Gerwig um, I mean who isn't um yeah, she's and a, yeah, it was it was a winsome affair. Yeah, she's someone who is always always seems on the cusp of being in something like really really big. Like she was, and then it, she was then like, it turns out to be Arthur with yeah. Russell Brand. That was gonna, I was going to say it's going to be that that one ones that you kind of think, oh, it's so close to being <laughs> something <laughs> that you would make her a, a bigger name with audiences. Uh, hopefully, someday soon that will happen because I think she is just a, a delightful screen presence. So a uh, a good first film in our top ten. Are you ready for the next one, Ed? Yes. I, I might apply a drum roll to every one of these, but that'll probably get tired, so yeah. we'll see. Um, okay, let's just scroll down. Number nine is mm, The Avengers. Oh, very interesting. Did it place yeah. on your list? I did not vote for that at all, Ed. Okay, it was reasonably high up on mine. I think it was in my top five. Um, so it's in there just on your merit only. Explain yourself. Uh, I really, really like... Uh, the Avengers. I know you have a, a very strong aversion to anything with capes in, uh, yeah. but I, as someone who has who has enjoyed all of the Marvel films, and someone who is a, a fan, uh, a long term fan of, of Joss Whedon, I was uh, excited for the Avengers, and it really exceeded uh, my expectations. I had a I had an absolute ball watching it the, the two times that I saw it in the cinema. Um, I thought it was. It, it did such a, a great job of balancing all these disparate characters and kind of finding the best in each of them. Um, I know you, you've often talked about the line that um, Captain America has about mm-hmm. uh, how he gets the reference to The Wizard of Oz, um, <laughs> yeah. which is just a, it's just a really great line delivery by uh, Chris Evans. But the whole script, to me, kind of has a nice balance between uh, a fun sense of humour, sort of group dynamics... And action, which are all things that you know anyone familiar with um, Josh Whedon's work as the creator of Buffy or Angel knows that he's pretty much the master of of that sort of thing of balancing disparate personalities and being able to engage them. I think the film has some structural problems in that it takes way too long to get everyone together. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like it, it really it, it's fun seeing like all the various characters and where they are in their lives, and obviously they have to reintroduce Bruce Banner as. Um, the third as a new guy after the previous <laughs> yeah. two and um but i think that once everyone gets together it's just a it's just a romp and i had a i, I had a, a fantastic time with it and it was nice to see a superhero film that was actually quite light-hearted and fun um as opposed to like the dark knight rises which i thought you know, i rewatched it just before this podcast actually because uh, my dad wanted to see it he hadn't seen it so i so we sat down and watched it together and i i didn't 
I think that one's improved in my memory more than it had, because I think I've more or less forgotten about it. But it is mm-hmm. so relentlessly sort of po-faced um, that I kind of... I, I, something like the, the sort of the cheeriness and the, the actual sense of fun of the Avengers just uh, delights me. Um, yeah, I didn't dislike the Avengers. <laughs> uh, it's not my bag. And I think that... Um, you're right. The, the 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 kind of interplay between the characters when they're sitting around talking is great, and I probably could have watched that for ninety minutes. Yeah. But when it gets, I mean, I just lost interest in the when it got to the the whole kind of space time opening and those people alien things coming out yeah. and there being that big fight at the end. I could, I could have just watched them talk like you know ragging on Captain America all day. Yeah. <laughs> for most, um, I like that. I, I, all those characters, I like. Um, uh, I watched Thor and I disliked Thor the film, but Thor with those other guys is funny. Yeah, he, um, he has a yeah. It's a good thing. It's really it's uh, essentially a load of disparate elements that have their own strengths and weaknesses when you take them apart, but you put them together and they all kind of complement each other well. Much like a, a a team of superheroes whose powers kind of combine to form something greater than themselves. Like Voltron. Yeah, so. Uh, yeah, is um, Avengers two next year, or is it going to be a couple? It's of years? going to be a little while. They've got to do everyone's individual films. They've got uh, Iron Man three uh, is out in May, I believe, which I'm yeah. I'm looking forward to because it's Shane Black, who uh, is a a very good writer and director, uh, great actor, great in Predator, <laughs> fantastic actor in Predator, um, and. Uh, then you've got like Thor and Iron Man two are the year after, and then I think Avengers is twenty fifteen. Um, right. Wow. I can't wait for Thor four. <laughs> I'm really looking. For, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, no, I I I thought the Avengers was all right, but you know, like I say, not my bag. Um, but I totally respect your opinion, Ed. Even though I think I think you're a massive fanboy. <laughs> okay, so moving on, number eight, we have. Uh, once upon a time in Anatolia, and uh, that's not one I've seen, Ed. So you must have bloody loved it. Um, tell us a little bit about it. Uh, yeah, I did. I think it was uh, it was number three on my list, so quite high up. Um, once upon a time in Anatolia is the new film by uh, Nuri Bilge Selam, who's a Turkish filmmaker. Um, previously directed the films Distant, which I haven't seen, but I believe you have. Yes, it's fantastic. If very very slow and and seemingly uh, kind of nothing happens but it's very absorbing and uh, kind of sucks you in yeah you, that that description would uh, apply to Once Upon in Anatolia as well um, as well as to um, Climates which was the film he made in between those two which is also uh, great um, that one's about the, the sort of uh, falling apart of a marriage which is uh, uh, grim dr- could be uh, grim viewing but he, he kind of makes it sort of uh, revelatory um, and the same is true of Once Upon a Time in Anatolia the plot um, is very very simple uh, essentially it's about a a group of men um, who go out into the wilderness in search of a dead body um, the, t- the men, it's a sort of a group of policemen and a coroner and the two men accused of carrying out this uh, murder so it's kind of a police in uh, a police procedural, except the crime's already happened, we already know, or at least we already think we know who committed it, and it's just about 
the uh, the search for the um, for the for the evidence essentially, but uh, the guy who uh, claims to have committed the crime doesn't really seem to remember quite where the body is. So over the course of a very long sort of day and night, the uh, the, the crew uh, sort of head out and they spend all this time travelling all over the all over the countryside trying to find this and going through different jurisdictions and because of the amount of time it takes uh, the men start having sort of conversations that gradually sort of move beyond just the the case itself and so you sort of get discussions of um, of sort of life and philosophy and it's a hugely uh, absorbing uh, is probably the best word for it and sort of mesmerising film that uh, ha uses this very, very simple premise to kind of go into incredibly uh, deep and uh, interesting sort of uh, areas. Sounds boring to me, Ed. <laughs> it's the sort of thing that's kind of very hard to... Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those ones that's hard to kind of uh, get across just what's so special about it because... Essentially, it's a film in which not very much happens. I mean, a lot of the uh, plot details have kind of all been wrapped up before the film even starts, really. Mm. Um, there's no investigation. It's just literally a case of, you know, where is this guy's body? And then towards the end of the film, sort of more details about the crime kind of emerge, and you start to wonder if the, the story that's being told is correct. But it's not a film about the crime itself so much as about the culture and the the uh, the situation with it and the the uh, sort of the darker recesses of humanity and stuff like that and it is absolutely uh, fantastic yeah well, it did seem to be a film which um the kind of the people uh, with a bit of inside skinny who are a bit more familiar with mr bilge's work were loving all year and the kind of people who were never heard of him who just went to see it on an off chance uh, kind of walked out or didn't really understand what was going on I mean uh, that kind of slow cinema movement has been moving around kind of Europe for quite a while now hasn't it so it's I mean and Distant was a film that was was uh, a big deal when it came out hence why I've seen it because I only see a foreign film you know if it's a big deal yeah. Um, um, but yeah I mean it's one of those things that if you go with it then I can imagine it, it being a very rich and rewarding experience, but if you're um, coming to it cold, then I imagine it, it will leave you as cold as that dead body. Very well put. Uh, yep. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Uh, the same's true of something like uh, Bellatar's The Turing Horse, which was also released this year and kind of falls within that mm. slow cinema movement. It's the sort of thing where if you are sort of attuned to the sort of the, the weird rhythms of those sort of films. Um, you can cut you. There's a lot to appreciate. Although um, that once upon a time, time in Anatolia is better than uh, than Turin Horse. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's one of those films where I know that there are some sort of people who vociferously hate it, mm -hmm. and I can't disagree with their reasons for it because it is a very it's a sort of film where you're you either like what it's trying to do sort of from the first sort of ten minutes or the sort of two and a half hours just is a complete drag. But uh, I, I thought it was amazing. Cool. Um, moving on uh, to film number seven, Ed. 
and it is just scroll down remember uh, listeners at home we do not know what these films are they have been sent to us on a uh, secret ballot as it were um, number seven is oh excellent uh, Magic Mike oh wow that came very high in, uh, in yours then I mean it was on it was in sort of the middle of the pack on mine so it must have been pretty high on yours yeah I think it was uh, number five in mine I think wow. Um but yeah, um, I really, really enjoyed Magic Mike. I thought it was a... Um, I've not seen a Steven Soderbergh film for a while, I have to say. Um, and I was... and But it was kind of due to the kind of love of uh, Channing, Channing Tatum <laughs> this year that um, I tuned into it. Um, a terribly marketed film over here. And I know fer- several people who fell foul to it. It was marketed as a kind of girls night out go and see a kind of a comedy I mean we've talked previously on a, uh, the first part of this year you round up probably why that was to try and cash in on, on Tatum's uh, um, you know comic fame as it were but it's nothing of the sort it's a um, like we said quite depressing <laughs> drama about um, someone just trying to eke out a living as a as a stripper really I would say eke out a living I mean, he's doing alright for himself but he's kind of soul is dying inside um, but it's it's a film that um yeah, it's it's kind of so kind of sweaty and uh, um, it kind of puts you right there. It's a really good film. I mean, in terms of um, Matthew McConaughey's resurgence, as we've talked about before, uh, he does a... Uh, hang on, should I talk about what the film's about first? Other than uh, just saying it's a depressing film about his soul dying. It's about strippers, let's move on. Um, <laughs> but there's a, there's a bit where Matthew McConaughey does a dance, which I read about this afterwards, that he... Didn't, it wasn't scripted that he did a dance because in the film he's kind of like the the kind of the madam of the of the brothel as it were, <laughs> and kind of oversees them. But he insisted to Soderbergh, I want to do a dance, so he did one, and it's great because the women they, it's all kind of improvised, so they kind of re- actually rip his thong off. But it's great. It, but it's that dance is so filthy. I almost got an STD just watching it. <laughs> um, but um, I I thought it was a, a brilliant film. Um, uh, across the board it kind of runs out of steam a little bit towards the end I'm not really sure it knows how to end itself mm. um, but I thought it was um, a great piece of work yeah I think that, that is probably the the main problem with it is it does kind of enter a holding pattern sort of for the last half an hour until things get really really bad for Mike and then it just kind of ends uh with a, a slight sort of hint of, of redemption, um, which is slightly disappointing, but I think um, the rest of the film kind of more than justifies its slight reversion to formula in the end, because uh, it's it's a really interesting film, because it is really depressing, but I, I when I think about it, I think it's also cu- quite vibrant in terms of like the dance routines and its sort of milieu. It's mm. all kind of... Because the, the routines in it are amazingly sort of worked out and they're very sort of kinetic and dynamic. Uh, and you kind of get that sense of each routine has some sort of emotional sort of core within the movie and some sort of reason for being there. Mm. Um, as if they're kind of like, uh, certainly the, the, the Chan Tatum character kind of like working through issues by sort of getting on stage and dancing. But, you know, it's kind of like... Uh, like a mask for the rest of the world, really. That's kind of his way of kind of transcending the fact that he's having to work like three or four separate jobs to kind of 
try and earn enough money to get out of stripping before he gets too old and it, it just becomes, you know, he ends up just trapped in it like uh, Matthew McConaughey's character is. Mm. And a great performance by Alex Pettifer in it, who um, I'd last seen playing Alex Ryder in Stormbreaker film. Um, yeah, a kind of a kid, a, yeah, kid actor, and kind of all of a sudden, holy shit, he was kind of, he's not who I would have thought to put forward for an audition for that part, but he nailed it, and uh, the, that kind of uh, uh, descent into, from being a kind of bright-eyed young thing who's just a bit kind of unreliable to being a kind of coked-up arsehole. Um, was is is a you know it's a really good performance, um, and yeah, I just had, just on a separate note, I didn't know because I'm kind of familiar with uh, latter era Tatum, Tatum as it were. Um, I didn't know he was a dancer or a stripper in real life, so um, I was like, oh, this guy, he's put so much effort into learning uh, all these moves, and uh, he must have thoroughly researched the stripping world. And then I realised that it was actually Tatum who. It was his idea for the film in the first place, and it was supposed to be. Uh, it was based loosely on his experiences stripping in Florida, um, and initially it was going to be uh, Nicholas Winding Ruffin who was going to direct it. Wow! Um, but couldn't do it. So uh, after teaming up for Haywire, he said to Soderbergh, "How about it?" And Soderbergh's like, oh, "I'm supposed to be retiring." He's like, Mur- "He's like Murtar in uh, Lethal Weapon." <laughs> <laughs> you just they keep pulling him back in one week to retirement, and then he comes up with another good idea, makes six more films. Um, but yes, Magic Mike, a worthy entry, I feel, into the top ten. I think I liked it a bit more than you, but uh, it was still a not, very good not, film. Not uh, a huge amount more. I still think it is, it is very, very good. It was just uh, when I was sort of shuffling the list, it, it gradually just got kind of moved further down. But I do think that it's it's really, really good. And uh, hopefully, I mean, it's it's been very, very successful, like surprisingly so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I kind of hope that it will in some way sort of transcend its success because I think it's kind of going to have this reputation for a long time of being like the Channing Tatum stripper comedy um, from people who didn't see it mm. they'll kind of, they'll, they'll think it's a very different film to what it actually is um, and the, uh, you know you kind of hope that over time people will kind of realise that it, that it does have a lot more going on behind you know the, the sort of the uproarious girls night out kind of marketing yeah. Cool. Right. Let's move on. Um, number six on our list is oh, hello, uh, Tatum Double in the middle. It's Twenty One Jump Street. Yeah, that one. I think that's another one which might have been higher up on your list than mine. But um, that was a uh, a very very pleasant surprise uh, back at the start of the year. Um, Twenty One Jump Street's the sort of reboot slash uh, piss take. Of the <laughs> classic, uh, in inverted commas, 80s um, uh, detective TV show, which was the kind of launching point for the career of, of Johnny Depp and a bunch of other people who've never really gone on to do much else. Yeah. Um, which was built on uh, an insane premise, um, <laughs> which is kind of slightly less insane when you realise it's something that some police station, police forces actually do. But that's neither here nor there. Um, about sort of young-looking cops who are hired on to uh, sort of infiltrate schools and stop low-level crimes that way. Um, in this case, the the film kind of embraces the ridiculousness of it by casting Channing Tatum, who is uh, mm. close, 
who is who is in his mid thirties, and Jonah Hill, who's never really looked young, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. as the two cops, and uh, gets a lot of comic mileage from that. But really, it's one of those sort of things where the premise kind of doesn't really matter that much because um, once you get them into the high school, it's just a kind of an a uproarious um, high school comedy that just occasionally kind of has the, uh, the the cop stuff going off in the on in the background. Yeah, it was the reason it's uh, entered at this point because it was my number three film on my list because I I cannot think of a film that I've enjoyed more just in a kind of uh, in the simple terms of 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 laughing my fucking head off so hard <laughs> at that film um, that I watched it um, and I. All I'd seen was, I mean, I just saw it and I just thought, oh, TV reboot is probably bullshit. Didn't, wasn't familiar with the show, wasn't familiar with Tatum. Jonah Hill was just someone in Superbad to me. It wasn't really anything that I'd uh, uh, wanted to see or anything. But then someone that kind of I knew just said, I'll oh, just watch it and, and just, just go with it. And I put it on and man alive did I laugh my head off. I, I thought it was fucking hilarious. Um and kind of everything about it was kind of smart funny it was kind of dumb funny it was um uh kind of like scatologically funny um and it it but it was just funny it was just it was the film that we talked last on the worst of uh, podcast about ted um but every target it goes for it hits and there's uh it's the guys who did how to train your dragon right no, uh, no. Cloud, cloudy with a chance of meatballs yeah yeah which is uh which has that kind of same kind of sense of anarchic kind of humour um, to it and yeah I, I thought it was oh, oh sorry I was going to say I watched it again and there's always a danger with comedies when you watch them again um, that it's just not going to be quite as good and I watched it the second time around with other people on my recommendation that's the worst position to put yourself in where you're like <laughs> hey hey guys watch this film it's hilarious and then you watch it and you're going to sit through 96 minutes of stony silence um, but no I laughed incredibly hard again the second time and so did they so um i think it's it's um the funniest film of all time um and will be uh, remembered as such it's better than airplane um and airplane too but um just to put it i just brought up a text my friend sent me so i recommended it to him my friend tristan friend of the show hello um and he just sent me a text and it's he's a man of few words uh but it simply just said 21 jump street was off the hook i'd bum tatum <laughs> <laughs> that was his. That was his review, and that is. Uh, I think that sums up better than uh, we ever could. Uh, but uh, I think you're you're right about uh, the uh, the similarity it has with um, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Is there is kind of a no holds barred kind of approach to it. Um, they 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 do try and cram in as many jokes as physically possible on screen, um, and from, the hit rate's very high. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me that the, the kind of approach that those guys have, um, I always think of, there's a there's a moment in Cloudy with Chance of Meatballs where all of the characters are kind of looking up in awe at the, at the, the sort of weather cloud as it's descending on them, and like the characters are gasping and they're taking off their glasses, and there's just a, like a two second shot where um, one of the characters pulls off his beard... <laughs> like he just looks up in shock and just pulls off his beard because he doesn't have anything else to kind of take off his face and it's a really funny gag and the guy's got a beard for the rest of the film so it's just like a single second 
gag, but every time it really makes me laugh because it doesn't have to be there. It doesn't add anything. It's just kind of like, it's clearly a case of they were like, okay, what can we do to kind of really kind of uh, jazz up this shot? And you kind of get the feeling that 21 Jump Street is that, but in the real world, every every kind of opportunity they have to kind of um, insert a sort of a funny ad-lib or to um, just like, even just in terms of framing and editing, how to make this look like even more ridiculous. Mm. Uh, just kind of, that they, they managed to find it. And uh, I think that's kind of why, why it's such a, a funny film is it, it's, you don't get a feeling that at any point they were kind of resting on their laurels and just kind of thinking, yeah, that's funny enough. They were just kind of trying to think of extra bits to kind of really, really uh, sell it. And just to just to kind of uh, add a kind of coda to that, but the the chemistry between Hill and Tatum is fantastic, and Tatum is very naturally funny. It's just yeah. not something we thought he would be, but obviously Jonah Hill is a comic actor. Uh, although Oscar nominated for serious uh, things in the last year, um, but uh, Tatum is very, very naturally funny, and and the chemistry between those two is is uh, spot on. Um, right, okay, uh, into top five now. This is exciting, isn't it? Uh, if it wasn't exciting before, it's dead exciting now. And we have at number five. Oh, hello. Um, uh, I think this is the first, and I reckon I'm going to bet the only British film on our list of top ten it is um the imposter ah yeah that's uh that is very very high up um i'm very good it is as well uh the imposter is a um documentary uh about a real life uh instance of um a family in texas whose uh, son young son went missing in the early 90s um and was missing for several years, and then was uh, found in Spain. Um, and then, you know, they were really excited, and then the, the sun came back, and then everyone was kind of a little uncertain uh, of him, um, such as the fact his hair was a different colour, he was taller and French. Mm. <laughs> yeah. um, and it was, it quickly became apparent, and as the documentary uh, demonstrates that in fact, this was a, a, a French con man who had spent years pretending to be a teenager uh, in various different countries and then just happened to fall into a situation where he had to pretend to be uh, this this kid to avoid getting in, t- in trouble with the law, which then spirals into this kind of uh, crazy situation in which this family takes him in despite sort of mountains of evidence to the contrary. Yeah, we don't want to say too much about it because there's a lot in it that, um, I mean, the, the, as much as we've said is is available kind of just in a basic synopsis of the film or, you know, you find out that in the first five minutes. Yeah. But what makes The Imposter um, more of a gripping tale is that it, it takes this story that is unbelievable and frames it very deliberately like a Hollywood thriller. And if you go right down to like the last shot of the film, uh, it kind of all it crosses the line from being a documentary um, into something because I mean a lot of the criticism about it was that it was a bit manipulative and the last the last shot of the film which is a great shot is set up and you realise that there's you know there's something a bit more going on on the side there but it works in service of a um, 
a documentary story, story told through um, kind of uh, excellent kind of editing and um, pounding kind of uh, thriller music, and it is done exactly like it. The, it feels like the usual suspects. You're watching the usual suspects. This kind of story is unfolding um, in the most kind of peculiar ways, um, and the filmmakers, you know, deliberately try and guide us that way um, by presenting the facts in in a certain style. Um, but it was a, a you know, I didn't know anything about it. I completely, when people said watch it but don't know anything about it, I took their advice, <laughs> and then I uh, kind of watched it a couple of weeks ago, and um, I was completely taken in by it. Yeah, um, it is. It, it, the, the structure of it is very interesting in that it's um, they use the um, the the in, they, they, it's constructed entirely well, half from sort of interviews and half from sort of Errol Morris Finn Blue Line style, incredibly uh, beautifully shot reconstructions, and um, I think it's it's very interesting that they essentially allow the con man to frame the story in a lot of ways because it's because yeah. he's obviously the centre of it and you wouldn't expect it to be sort of conducted in that way but it works really really well because he is because there's a there's a tension in the film because he is very compelling and a very charismatic man and at the same time as you're watching it you always have in the back of the line. But for years and years, he pretended to be other people, and he is a liar. <laughs> um, that's what he did. He is an imposter. So you you kind of are taken in by him as you're watching it, but at the same time, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, but isn't he, you know, should I trust him more because I know he's a liar? Mm-hmm. Or <laughs> should I trust him less because in the back of my mind, I know he spent years and years and years... Uh, lying to pretty much everyone in the world uh, and I think that there's uh, something really really intriguing in the way the film frames it like that uh, in terms of sort of re- films that it resembles it, re- it reminded me quite a bit of Blood Simple in places because obviously the Texas kind of setting yeah but also particularly once the detective shows up who's <laughs> that guy is um, who just seems he, he does not seem like a real person <laughs> No, he doesn't. And there, there was a there was a point after the film had finished that I thought I wondered if he was a stooge. But then, um, yeah, I, I no, it was it was just one of those characters in documentaries that you get that are too unrealistic <laughs> to be real, but they are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, how often do you really look at a man's ears? <laughs> um, great. Well, I know I'd be hiring that guy to find. Uh, my missing son, um, but yeah, I really feel and it kind of cleaned up at the Biffers um, alongside some of uh, the Bavarian Sound Studio and Sightseers and things. But it was that was one of the big winners at, at the Biffers the other day, um, The Imposter, in which that was the point I realised it was a British film. Yeah, I I wouldn't have pegged it as because it's obviously the setting is American and everyone in it's American or French. But um, I think the guy who directed it. Uh, did a lot of like reconstruction programs for BBC, or, or for British TV at least, where it's like uh, reconstructing uh, different uh, events, uh, criminal activities, and stuff, which makes a lot of sense, really, considering the film. Yeah, it reminded uh, reminded me a bit of Man, like Man on Wire, where it had mm-hmm. that kind of uh, one half documentary, other half um, kind of narrative film, really. The reconstructions, because reconstructions in documentaries really. Uh, can be quite shit 
and mm. I think then, like you mentioned, Errol Morris and the Thin Blue Line, they kind of did something a little bit different in that kind of. Um, it was quite a while ago, but uh, it wasn't until like James Marsh's films, because he's a narrative filmmaker first, documentary filmmaker second, that he kind of u- utilizes those skills to to bring the story to life in a completely different way. Yeah. Do you do you think that there's something disingenuous in that approach? Um, obviously, the film The Imposter's got a lot of acclaim, but it's also got a lot of criticism for, um, in some ways, using the sort of the structure of Philip the structure of a thriller to kind of put across it's an interpretation of the events without actually kind of having the without seeming to do so it's not like the filmmate the director is actually there saying i believe that such and such happened he's but he's presenting kind of a compelling narrative in which that seems the most likely result um, I don't think it's disingenuous. I can see how it might manipulate more than a straight documentary would, but I think if you told that story in a different way, um, it wouldn't be as, as interesting, I don't think. I think that, um, I keep mentioning it, the thin blue line, when it used, when it does the bits where it's reconstructing the events that a liar, someone who is proved to the end of the film to be telling, uh, porcupines, um, he the reconstructions based on the events that he's talking about change and mm. um if if that you took those reconstructions out of the thin blue line um then we wouldn't be saying um that it's been manipulated for the filmmaker's favor mm. we we just we we accept those reconstructions um, as telling the story at that point in a certain way. I think the imposter does manipulate more, and like I said, the last shot of the film crosses the line. Mm-hmm. But um, I feel like it suits the story it's trying to tell, that style. And it, um, I, I, I don't have a personally have a problem with it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to stand by it as a, as a, as a document with which to um, kind of defend myself in court. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, as a thoroughly entertaining way of telling that factual story I, I had no problem with it whatsoever cool um, ok right getting into the nitty gritty now um, and I'm desperately trying to remember what I voted for mm-hmm. um, but the last few have seemed to have been taken up by films that I voted quite highly and you had on your list and it just kind of pushed them up the list into the, the kind of upper reaches as it were number four we have hey Looper yeah that one uh, was I think that, that one made my top ten mm-hmm definitely made mine um yeah a film we were really excited for from you know from the start of the year onwards we um love ryan johnson um and we're kind of looking for a return to form after uh brothers bloom was uh should we say didn't quite work out as it should have done still had a lot of good things going on in it but looper the time travel hitman thing um which i'm really pleased did well at the box office uh you know kind of a film that's not uh, a kind of franchise entry or hanging on a on a kind of big star. I know Bruce Willis is in it, but you know the star of that is um, clearly um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's fake nose, <laughs> which was very distracting. But um, I got over it and just went with it. And what you actually got was a, you know, a really entertaining yet kind of cerebral, not in a kind of distracting way, film. Yeah, definitely. Um... In a sort of similar way to Brick, which obviously also starred Joseph Gordon-Levitt, because he's in, he's kind of 
Ryan Johnson's De Niro. Um, he, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of very meticulously sort of worked out. Um, you get a real sense that he's thought a great deal about how to uh, weave together these two, the, this uh, sort of really complex timeline, which is all about um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays what's known as a loofer, a looper, not a loofer. A, a loofer? <laughs> he's a... He's a looper, which is uh, a hitman who is hired by gangsters from the future to sort of help dispose of bodies that are sent back in time, sort of when the guys in the future want to get rid of someone and make sure they never crop up uh, at any sort of uh, disadvantageous time to them. They send them back in time 30 years, but the, the crux of this deal they have is that eventually... Uh, the person will be uh, they'll have to kill is themselves, sort of the future version to close the loop uh, and uh, it comes a time when uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt has to kill his future self uh, Bruce Willis uh, and he fails to do so because uh, the Bruce Willis uh, character manages to sort of uh, get out of it and uh, winds up going on the run, at which point it becomes this kind of, like, chase film, sort of, uh, sort of, I, I kind of thought of it as, like, a reverse Terminator, really, and that the, the one from the future is the one, uh, being tracked down, but also is the one kind of murdering innocent people, um, at various points in the film, uh, so it's kind of, I know some people, there's, there's kind of an event that occurs in the film that, Certainly, some people I know uh, could not get on board with and, and lost all sympathy with the Bruce Willis character. But I kind of get the feeling he's not the sympathetic one in that story. Mm. Uh, well, he's doing it for very good reasons. Yeah, you'd say so. Um, at the same time, he, he does do things that are quite reprehensible. Yeah, um, I really loved Looper. Um, I went to see it at the cinema. I paid to see it at the cinema. That's how much I liked it because. Uh, you know, normally I'm a bit of a ligger when it comes to these things. Uh, um, I said ligger, by the way, there, <laughs> before I get accused of any kind of Michael Richards style uh, <laughs> kind of breakdown. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I think I was um, really swept up by it. And I think that since watching it, um, I have kind of read a bit about people kind of moaning about plot holes in it and so on and so forth. <laughs> and I'd um, kind of just like to use that to illustrate... Um, what I didn't like um, and how it, it stands up against another film starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt with plot holes this year um, The Dark Knight Rises which those I mean everyone's gone on about those we've gone on about them um, and you know you, you weren't bothered by it but I was and in a, in a sense that I haven't even stopped to think about what people have talked about as plot holes in, in Looper whereas The Dark Knight Rises as soon as I left the cinema that's what I thought about um, and in that case it kind of tarnished it for me in the sense that I, I noticed them enough for it to be a distraction whereas Looper I, have, I really haven't thought about it at all I was just kind of taken in by the storytelling and um, you know by the action and, and um, by the performances which were a lot of fun to watch it was a lot of fun to watch um, Jennifer Love Hewitt trying to be Bruce Willis without doing it you could see him fighting do it with not doing an impersonation of him but it, they were both really good. There's a great scene when they kind of first meet in a diner, um, and there's also that really funny gag where he kind of carves into his arm, um, 
and he kind of but there's a joke with the waitress's name which I won't spoil for people who haven't seen it but um it, it kind of had everything really it was it was really well written it was really smart it was um the performances were great it took a lot of things that were I mean it's difficult with sci-fi when you try and do something when you kind of build a world as it were that it, you know you kind of think oh it's been done before or um you know it's a bit kind of hokey but um the world they imagine isn't too dissimilar to what we live in now um and they don't make a big deal of the technology or you know things like that um i mean there's a bit where he gets his phone out at the end towards the end of the film and it's just like a tiny plastic speck of mm-hmm. glass and i really thought that in, in in less capable hands or or hands that were more bothered about the special effects this would have been a you know massive plot device yeah. um and uh, you know it's it's a really kind of grubby um sci-fi in that sense and um yeah i i thought it was uh, you know a fantastic piece of work yeah i think it's very true about the world building thing as well cuz there's a whole other section there's a whole other kind of like thing to do with people who have uh, esp which wasn't talked about at all in like the trailers or anything but it's actually a really big part of the the story but he works in really, really subtly. He, he does a really good job of making us forget about it as well, doesn't he? Where he's like, um, oh yeah, we discovered that some people had ESP and then it just shows a guy lifting a coin off the palm of his hand and he's just like, yeah, that's about as good as it got. Yeah. Uh, um, that, you know, it never turned out to be kind of people who could do extraordinary things. And then, yeah, I mean, the the kind of film is so well written um, in much like the way Brick is that you forget about those small details until they're relevant later and then all of a sudden... You know, you don't feel like you've had the wall pulled over your eyes, which you have, but uh, you, you know, he's done it in a, in a kind of a very clever way. So yes, Looper definitely um, the best uh, uh, kind of um, action film, I guess, of the year, I suppose. Um, also, I'd like to say that in the UK, you might have missed this when you know in the move. It was victim of the laziest poster quote of all time. Um, it was on on kind of buses and everywhere around here. Someone, I don't know what publication they wrote for, I should have written it down and then written to them to complain. But they described the looper as, this decade's The Matrix. Which leads me to believe that they haven't seen The Matrix. Um, or Looper. <laughs> or, a fi- or a film. Because... There is literally nothing to connect those two films other than the fact that they star a white male um, and nope, that is it. (laughs) That is it. They're both films that are shown on screens to people who sit in the dark. I really hope that that same quote uh, is then is next used on Spielberg's Lincoln. (laughs) Which also fulfills that criteria. Yeah, it's uh, I'm yeah, I just can't believe how fucking lazy that was. Um and I can't even see why someone would say it. Um but yeah, anyway, let's move on. Hey, we're into top 3 now, Ed. Ooh, uh shit shit is getting real. Um okay, the number 3 film on the shot reverse shot films of 2012 list is Oh, it's a heavyweight. It's The Master. Ooh, yes. Uh Paul Thomas Anderson's much Delayed, much-awaited uh, sixth film. Oh. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sixth film. Um, about, but not really. But yes, about the um, the early days of Scientology, in which a sort of a drifter who's a sort of a, an alcoholic who had uh, previously thought fought in the World War Two um, in the Navy, kind of returns to America, drifts, and doesn't really have a uh, 
any sort of uh, direction in life falls under the sway of this charismatic uh, cult leader played by uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who uh, leads these group, uh, a group called The Cause, who are all based around his love of Irish pop group The Cause. Yep, um, absolutely. And uh, or, or possibly behind nonsense theories that he's made up himself. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I uh, really, really love Paul Thomas Anderson. I think we may have discussed this before. I think he's uh, he's a wonderful uh, filmmaker. I think uh, There Will Be Blood and Punch Drunk Love are two of the, the greatest films ever made. Um, oh, well, eh? Particularly uh, There Will Be Blood, which I think is, is a strong contender for my favourite film. And uh, I really, really like The Master. I think it's a step down from... There will be blood, but mm-hmm. then again, you're talking about sort of the upper echelons of what is possible to do in cinema. Yeah. So I think a step down from that is not uh, as sort of uh, huge a, a sort of a fall from grace as uh, it might appear. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I thought that it was uh, really quite mesmerising. I think it's one of the the, I mean one of the recurring themes in all of Anderson's works are kind of like um, father-son relationships, either between real sons or, or surrogate, more often than not surrogate sons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was kind of the, one of the the most fully realised of those relationships he's done. Sort of seeing the way in which those two um, sort of grow to depend upon each other and sort of hate each other, but also in a way love each other as well. It is kind of in some ways a love story between the two of them. Mm. Um, that kind of unfolds over sort of many years, uh, and uh, I I thought it was uh, uh, utterly absorbing. Mm. It was. It was. Um, that's probably the best word to describe it. Uh, it's the buzzword of this podcast: absorbing. <laughs> um, um, yeah, it's not a paper towel, um, but it, it was kind of. Um, Amazing to see those two actors on stage. Um, I don't even say sparring because they're not kind of uh, antagonising each other for most of the film. Um, but watching uh, you get pulled into the story in the way that you'd imagine someone like Joaquin Phoenix's character would get pulled into uh, this cult. It was quite mesmerising. Um, it was um, it was a little cold. I felt that's the thing that the thing that I drew back on and and for me I mean I'm I loved Paul Thomas Anderson um I think that um Magnolia and Boogie Nights are uh amazing um so I I'm I like the other types of his films um to you um I'm but we both obsessed. think Hard 8 is shit I don't you do <laughs> I think I think Hard 8's good um, yeah, I've, I've, soft, not... I've softened on it since rewatching it but yeah I, I, I for years I didn't particularly care for Hard 8 yeah it's the only one of his films that feels like it's of its time. Mm. It feels like one of those late nineties post pulp fiction kind of multi stranded narrative films in a way. Um um that's the only one that does. Um I'm yeah, I'm mildly obsessed by Magnolia. Um I think he's probably the the, the you know, certainly the best living American filmmaker at the minute. Um and you know his films will always be interesting but the master for me um felt a bit detached i felt like um i appreciated it more than warm to it mm. uh, whereas 
and I'm I'm not really sure why that is. I think um, it it felt it you know it felt very natural. It didn't feel kind of uh, calculated or um, made in the in the way that he wanted it to sit in a museum for people to look at it and admire rather than kind of watch and and take in. But it certainly had a feeling to me that there was I was I'm not in a huge hurry to see it again. Mm. Whereas all these other films, you know, you have to say. Um, you know, I want to to kind of uh, you know revisit that that world again and 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 spend time with those characters again and and kind of try and understand it more. But in this one, I kind of I watched it and I just thought, okay, that's that's fine, um, that's amazing, that's amazing. But I I don't want to, I'm not in a particular rush to kind of revisit. Whereas I know people have seen it kind of several times. Cause it was released in seventy mil as well, wasn't it? Yeah. So the kind of cineasts among us, um, you know, really really went for it. I mean, but I mean, what, what you know. It was, it's an event for for um, cinema lovers to go and see a Paul Thomas Anderson film because they don't come along too often. Um, but yeah, he's uh, yeah he's all right, isn't he? He knows what he's doing, Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, I'd say so. I think he knows how to, to put a film together. Uh, yeah, physically and and uh, just in terms of narrative. Uh, I think yeah, I think I have much the same sort of thing. I don't think it's a very emotionally. Um, uh, I don't want to say not emotionally engaging, but it's not a very, it's just not a very emotional film. Um, certainly not in comparison to sort of Magnolia, which is one of the most emotional films ever made. Um, mm. I actually bought Magnolia on Blu-ray the other day and I watched the first sort of half an hour and uh, I was struck by how sort of in terms of its like frenetic pacing, it's kind of mm-hmm. like the sort of uh, miserable version of Raising Arizona. Because <laughs> they, they both got like constantly moving camera, voiceover, um, just like f- sort of plunging you into the lives of the various characters at a breakneck speed. But one of mm. them does it to um, uh, to that you know that weird uh, whistling um, sort of bluegrassy music that Raising Arizona uses, and uh, Magnolia does it to that cover of one. Um, yeah. But so think, should we call it um, Sinking Arizona? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, like, The Master, I think, there is sort of a, a remove to it. I think there is a sort of a sense of... And I think that's partly because it's just such a very difficult relationship because both the, the two men are both kind of sizing each other up for pretty much the whole film. Like, you know that Joaquin Phoenix's character is kind of being drawn under the thrall of... Um, of uh, of the of the cat of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman of um, Lancaster Dodd, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time he there's this sort of nervous twitchy air to him that kind of suggests that he uh, maybe is just generally distrustful of everyone, but mm. kind of trust eventually obviously falls under the sway of this guy because uh, he uh, ends up you know becoming sort of a key figure in his organisation. Um, and I think that it's it's a very it's kind of a, a very difficult film. There is sort of a, a layer to kind of break through that I don't think there is in his other films, mm. um, because that you've got these two like really contrasting sort of id and ego characters essentially, um, which is is kind of fascinating. But then they're not as immediately kind of compelling as. Um, or Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood, or but also there's not kind of the same sort of broad spectrum of characters that, you know, you see in Magnolia and Boogie Nights, where 
you know, they can kind of, it, the film can kind of flip between different characters and uh, expose different facets of the world. It's very much just about these two characters who are sort of very um, intense and very sort of uh, unnerving to spend a huge amount of time with for, for different reasons. Mm. It, it almost feels like um, Paul Thomas Anderson spent his early career wanting to be Robert Altman mm. and now he seems to be morphing into Stanley Kubrick. Um, oh yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, so that was our number three film. That was, uh, um, you know, I, I didn't feel like I had to vote for it but when as soon as I watched it I was like, well, you know, that's obviously great. Yeah. <laughs> um, everything else, I think, that's the the only film that I voted for that doesn't perhaps reflect my film watching personality, um, but it's the one that you know empirically was a great film. Yeah. This year. Um, okay, number two um, on our list is. Let me have a little look down here. Do, 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 do. Well, it's Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, a, a win for the Andersons this this uh, year. Yep, Andersons in silver and bronze. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I have aforementioned my um, uh, kind of annoyance with Mr. Wes Anderson that since um, the Royal Tenenbaums, uh, he has been kind of labouring the point, shall we say? Um, especially with um, Life Aquatic and uh, the other one, Darjeeling Limited. I felt like he was just going through the motions. I didn't feel like his was saying anything particularly new. It was just a kind of different set of characters in funny hats. Um, uh, not that they weren't good films, but you know, I, I, I felt like he, he was kind of uh, treading water. Then he did Fantastic Mr. Fox, which was an awful lot of fun, and I thought it was lovely that he'd worked with someone else's material, and I felt like that was a nice kind of freshen up to his uh, repertoire. But oh my God, did I enjoy Moonrise Kingdom! Um, I feel like that was uh, the most winsome film of the year um, hugely likeable um, and uh, I think his films have got the um, uh, do have the capacity to kind of uh, freeze people out a little bit not in a Stanley Kubrick way but in a way that they're kind of a little bit too considered a bit too managed the characters that you feel are oh, you know this, is, this isn't a character um, but especially the two kid leads in this film uh, you just you just kind of with them all the way yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that the sort of change in focus to focusing on, on young kids probably is responsible for why it has a very different feeling to uh, a lot of his other works. Because certainly since, um, with the exception of Rushmore, which is obviously focused on a high school student, a lot all of his films are kind of about um, adults who have sort of showed promise as kids or in their youth and then have kind of fallen into sort of slightly depressing sort of lives. Um, that's definitely true of sort of Steve Zissou, who obviously is kind of creatively as a character, as someone who's kind of lost their love of their job and uh, is true of the three brothers in uh, in uh, the Darjeeling Limited who have just kind of all sort of really sort of drift away from each other and are quite sad um, and in this one what I really liked is that it still has those characters in it you know it has the Bill Murray and, and Francis McDormand whose marriage is on the rocks mm -hmm. um, and uh, then uh, you know you've got uh, Bruce Willis who's just this sort of sad sack cop 
who uh, is uh, a wonderfully funny character. Uh, him and Edward Norton have some wonderful scenes together. Um, mm. That's also another kind of sad sort of adult. And uh, I think what's really great about it is there's a nice contrast between those people who have kind of been ground down a little bit by life and then the two young kids who are just so caught in the, the thrall of, of young love that uh, that they kind of go off on this like ridiculous thing. They're going to go off and get married and uh, sort of try and survive in the wilderness, which then sort of sparks off the, the sort of insanity of the rest of the film. Um, and I think that there's a lovely contrast there between sort of this sort of idealism and sort of like the slightly disappointing... Uh, nature of adulthood which uh has there's not never really been quite the contrast that extreme in anderson's films which is why i think this one feels different to the other ones and why it's so so winning mm. um and i mean people have built it as a return to form i guess but it really wasn't because fantastic mr fox was great but i mean in terms of it being across the board uh kind of thumbs up um it, it certainly was um and it was it was nice to see him um expanding his uh rep company of actors uh even though um yeah owen wilson's not in it was he no murray, murray and uh schwartzman are both in it yeah but he brings he's bringing owen wilson back for his next film but yeah i uh absolutely loved moonrise kingdom uh, it brought back memories of when i was a, a cub scout and i um you know plan to escape with a, a girl from the local uh, amateur drama group this didn't happen I was in the Cub Scouts that much is true um, but yeah lovely film I could endlessly rewatch but I've already seen it kind of two or three times it's it's um, a really really cool film um, what else can we say about it as I already said um, I think it's it's very interesting that uh, visually it's probably the most Wes Anderson-y film uh, certainly the most the most symmetrical yeah as, as was pointed out by um the guy from ultraculture who did a very funny thing where he took the trailer and then um sort of had the reverse of it the sort of the mirror image of it playing alongside so you could see just how no he split it in two and then mirrored it so you could just see how amazingly symmetrical every single shot in the film was yeah um, and you kind of get the sense that that's kind of maybe something he got he's kind of been moving towards that throughout his career um i thought it would reach its kind of peak with uh the fantastic mr fox which obviously is all uh created uh you know uh animated characters so you can uh help you can create every shot and every moment from scratch so it was interesting seeing it sort of worked even more fully here uh, but I think that made kind of like the messiness of the characters' lives kind of work even better, really. The fact that everything was like so picture-perfect uh, in its composition that all of their kind of like neuroses uh, kind of uh, were more pronounced as a result. Mm. Wow. Well, that was Moonrise Kingdom, which leads us to um, our number one film of the year, as voted for by all all of our staff here at <laughs> Shot Reverse Shot, um, our number one film of the year um, is Searching for Sugar Man. Um, a surprising number one, I'd say. Uh, a kind of unassuming number one. 
Um, not one that at the start of the year we would have said that would be up there, but you know why did why has it ended up as our number one Ed? Uh, I just think it's because it was it was my personal number one. Um, was it yours? Yeah, it was. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's mainly why the fact we yeah. got voted for it. Um, but I think uh, it's. I mean, it's uh, an unassuming and surprising number one. But then again, it's about a surprising and unassuming uh, man, uh, Sixto uh, Rodriguez. A it's a documentary about a him. He was a, a Detroit born musician who recorded two albums in the 60s that sold less than no copies in America. Um, uh, I think probably the only way people got hold of them was probably by stealing them from him. Uh, That's how little sort of airplay he seemed to get. Um, And then he disappeared for about 40, for about 30 odd years. No one had heard of him during that time. And and then, sort of weirdly, his music wound up becoming this kind of cultural phenomenon in South Africa, where sort of. The and we say cultural phenomenon. It was like as big as the Beatles in yeah, South Africa. As someone says in the documentary, if you went into someone's sort of middle class home in South Africa, uh, you'd see a copy of Abbey Road, a copy of Pet Sounds, and a copy of. Uh, of uh, Sixto of uh, Rodriguez's um, album, um, and uh, it's just uh, it's just such a, a fascinating documentary about the way in which uh, this man's music kind of resonated with people who wanted to stand up to apartheid but didn't really have any real means of voicing their opposition because of the the power of the state, but how sort of these these two albums. Uh, so you know, like twenty odd songs spawned entire artistic movements in another country, um, which is absolutely sort of fascinating to me. But at the same time, it, similarly to the imposter, there's kind of another uh, genre in there, which is sort of a detective film where these the fans of Rodriguez are sort of trying to figure out what actually happened to him over the years. You know, there's all these rumours that he shot himself on stage. He set fire to himself on, on stage. stage. Yeah, that he that he's uh, he's been dead for like years and years and years, and so there's this sort of really fascinating sort of narrative to it, which is all about the uh, which is all uh, about his uh, his the, their search for him, and then there's also this like great insight into his cultural impact, um, and I just found the whole thing very very moving, just seeing the impact that one man could have. Without, without intending to, and without even realising it. Yeah, I um, I saw this film at Dotfest. Um, uh, it was the opening night gala screening. I was so excited for it because I, I all I'd heard about it was the um, the buzz from Sundance um, about this film that you kind of had to see without knowing too much about. So I went to see it. It got a standing ovation because it was you know so kind of great, and then. Um, Rodriguez came on stage and answered some questions, which was pretty great. Um, but then the best thing after that is that we all kind of jotted round to the corner to Queen's Social Club and he played a three-song set for oh. everyone. So that was a huge moment of the year for me. I videoed some of it, so I'll, I might post that up on, on my blog somewhere. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it's an amazing story. Um, it was interesting that when the Q&A happened, 
at the at the Dotfest screening. Someone stood up and said, "Do you know it was really not just South Africa where your music was, you know, really big? Like she was, I'm from Australia, and and Sugar Man, the song Sugar Man was, um, yeah, huge. It was a big hit. But the one of the the threads of the film is this kind of, um, how about how he, he didn't see any of the money." And you know they speak to the the kind of label boss, and he's like, "Well, you know, I didn't see any money from it." But you think, "Well, hang on, if it sold all these copies, someone must have seen some money from it." So there's this kind of mystery of where the money went. Um, but yeah, it was um, intriguing. Uh, uh, it was absorbing. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly, it's been an absorbing year um, for film, and uh, yeah, it was kind of funny as well, and it was. Um, it just illuminating. It was really beautiful as well. There was some lovely animation in that film, um, and some lovely kind of uh, cinematography of of the kind of contrasting worlds of the you know, kind of sun drenched uh, South African coast and and you know the kind of chilly kind of Detroit uh, kind of industrial scene. Um, but yeah, it was it was kind of a clear choice for my number one. I have to say, um, and I kind of felt that way as soon as I'd seen it that it was. Something a bit different, or something a bit special. I'm really pleased that it's done great, and it's. I think it's out on DVD at the end of end of the year, or kind of nowish, or the start of next year. Um, so if you haven't uh, had the opportunity to see it at the cinema, I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend you do. As do I. I think it's a, a absolutely wonderful film. As you say, it's beautiful. It's very uh, uplifting as well. Um, it reminded me. It, tonally, it's massively different, but it reminded me uh, in some ways of Anvil, the story of Anvil. Mm. which has that same kind of like uh, really uplifting kind of thing where someone who uh, sort of never thought that they could be sort of a superstar or that they'd ever have sort of a big audience um, gets to experience what's that what that's like and you know the the stuff of you know you hear about when Rodriguez goes to South Africa and plays like six sold-out concerts in a row, like hundreds of thousands of people come and see him, you just kind of feel like, you know, there's something right with the world. Uh, yeah. That's, that's what's uh, one of the things that's really sort of wonderful about Searching for Sugar Man. Mm, yeah. I can reveal as well in real life he's blind as a bat. Um, <laughs> uh, he was, yeah, he he couldn't couldn't see very well. But he was a lovely man. People were getting, you know, photographs and autographs and stuff. And he was, uh, as he's in the film, a kind of very open and lovely guy. Um yeah, so right, well that's it, Ed. That's that's two thousand and twelve done. Um it's been a great year for us. Uh it's been a right year for film. Hopefully it'll be uh kind of better next year. Um but have you got anything else to say um to two thousand and twelve? Uh I think I'd just like to thank everyone who's listened over the last year. Um we've you know, as as you and I have discussed off air, you know, there's been We've seen a lot of uh, people kind of tune in and say lovely things about us uh, over the sort of last 12 months. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's it's really cool. I hope that everyone uh, and has enjoyed our slightly self-indulgent end of the year. Um, uh, and we'll uh, continue to check us out over the next year. I think you and I have both got sort of uh, plans of what we want to do to kind of expand the show and, and sort of doing things like artist profiles and, and stuff like that, which hopefully we'll start doing from January and yep. people will finally get to hear our much delayed episode about The Wire. Yes. Which uh, I'm very, very proud of. I think that's a really cool episode. Uh, and yeah, I'd just like to you know, thank everyone. Thank you for uh, 
doing a lot of the legwork in terms of making <laughs> these things listenable. Uh, well, yeah, there's only so much I can do. Ed, you know, a uh, kind of chief turd polisher. Um, I spend so much time editing out, kind of. So, I mean, if I had a compl, I wish I'd have kept all the stuff. If I had a compilation of just some of some of the weird tangents we've gone down, that like we talk and it, it, we we talk about something else, and then we go off, and then it's like, well, hang on, that's not that's not even interesting or funny or anything. That's just weird. What is wrong with you? Um, that's why I say to myself an awful lot. Um, so yeah, some of that's ended up on the cutting room floor. But uh, I've been very pleased with it. I mean, um, um, it's been a nice year, and I'm very pleased now to give the public their ten films of the year because they've been waiting. They wanted to know what are the films that we need to see. Because um, I get, I kind of, as much as I kind of enjoy doing fun stuff like this, I kind of, uh, uh, I've got a bit of a kind of bee in my bonnet about bloggers like you know here's my top 10 here's my updated top 10 and i just think well i don't really care um but no when we do this obviously this is gospel yeah as everything we do is oh absolutely um i mean we do say at the end of every episode uh that you know if you didn't know what to think now you do um so yeah i yeah nice one everyone thank you uh for listening and um have a bloody merry christmas or alternative winter festival that you have i know we have many multi-faith listeners i'm doing it again i'm fucking rambling again <laughs> um but yes um for 2012 it is goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me 